I think it was exhilarating. I don't think it was scary at all. I mean, not for me, because <laughs> that was it was my job to get countries to agree and solve legal or constitutional or political you know, issues, build coalitions, kind of build that momentum. So for me, it was exhilarating. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments, false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Hi, this is Asymmetrical Haircuts. I'm Janet Anderson. And I'm Stephanie van den Berg. And today's episode is done with the support of JusticeInfo.net. As we've mentioned previously, the 20th anniversary of the International Criminal Court is rapidly approaching. Yes, the Rome Statute, the bit of the paper that 60 states signed up to between 1998 and 2002, came into force on July 1st, 20 years ago. And Brigitte Sua started working for the Coalition for the International Criminal Court on getting states to sign up and to ratify the treaty soon after the Rome Statute was born. I tracked her down on a tropical island. You can hear the birds in the background. And I asked her whether there was a sense at the time of, oh my goodness, no, what do we do now? After the states had indicated their willingness to support the ICC. Or more of a, yay, here we go. I think the feel at the time was, yay, here we go. but what's going to really happen and it might take forever and what can we do and so the coalition with its various members both international and national you know each kind of came up with their approach coordinated to a certain extent through the coalition but how are we going to capitalize on this moment to, to push things through and um that's that's what we did we worked together with the national partners and the national allies government officials that were either interested or could be interested and we identified a range of countries that we thought we could get on board. And, you know, it trickled at first and then it really took off. So why was it that this magic number of 60, which was needed for the ICC to come into being, why did that happen so fast? You know, I think there are probably lots of reasons, but I, I do think the the momentum around Rome helped. You know, it, there were so there's so many countries in the world, especially if you look at the list of states parties uh, and early states parties and early supporters. There were many many countries that had had serious crimes occur on their territory and had been struggling for five years or twenty years to try to find some momentum around national level justice. So this idea that this could be you know, a counterpart to the national level justice at the international level uh, really helped. And in some cases, like I covered Latin America at the time, and some of the folks in power at the time were on the other side back in the in the moment when there there were the crimes at the national level. So I think just from a philosophy and a, and a personal conviction, uh, there's a lot of commitment there. So with such a rush of states signing up, I wondered whether it had maybe been a bit scary trying to keep up with all the demands. I think it was exhilarating. I don't think it was scary at all. I mean, not for me, because <laughs> that was it was my job to to make it happen and, and get countries to agree and solve legal or constitutional or political you know issues, build coalitions nationally, internationally to kind of build that momentum. So for me, it was exhilarating. It was daunting because you know for every country I I mentioned that that exhibited big commitment, there's also many others that didn't, and so it was you know, it's always that, it's always that question, do you go for low hanging fruit to kind of build things up? That's great. But then you also have to go for not so low hanging fruit or where something's, you know, either morally very significant or politically very powerful. You've kind of got to hit 
all the right notes with um, who eventually joins on. And that flood gradually became more of a trickle after the court started working. So why did it become more difficult? At some point, the harder countries are left. You know, the United States was really campaigning against ratification, not just for itself, of course, but also trying to lean on others to, to not ratify. So that became a real, a real problem. Um, and it was just harder, you know, when you're looking at the likes of the US, Russia and China, you know, not in the court that can some countries will use that as an excuse not to ratify other countries will just or other realities are those are important countries at some point. Um, and in particular, when they're fighting against the court, not just being silent. Um, so that was part of it. Uh, but really, I mean, I stopped working on ratification in 2014, when there was about 114, I don't remember exactly the number, but that's a lot of countries out of, out of the world. So there weren't, you know, in that sense, that many left who had an interest or had an ability. So that was uh, Brigitte Sua speaking from a holiday on a tropical island surrounded by wonderful noises. And so let's pick up that last point, Steph. It is rather rare now, isn't it, that we notice a new state signing up. In fact, there are many political debates in the different countries about what it would mean to sign up to their own statute. And we've even seen some of the first withdrawals. Could you, Stephopedia, us a bit on that? I do remember the withdrawal uh, threats. In 2016, there was a threat of a kind of mass walkout of African countries. In the end, only Burundi actually withdrew, but South Africa and some other African states also threatened to do that. And then two years later, in 2018, we saw that the Philippines withdrew when the prosecutor started investigating the drug war, and the, the Philippine government wasn't very happy with that. So now, around this 20th anniversary, we've brought together, with the help of the Coalition for the International Criminal Court, where Brigitte used to work, a group of people who are all campaigning for states to join and also to make sure that their domestic laws allow for the effective prosecution of ICC crimes and for cooperation with the court. And that part, the NGOs say, is absolutely essential to creating the Rome Statute system, that there is a universal system for accountability, meaning stopping impunity everywhere, or as the NGOs like to call it, uh, plugging the impunity gap. So we wanted to ask them, why do states sign up? What's in it for them and their citizens when they do? And what is the hesitation from some states? So we wanted to welcome Melissa Verpil from Parliamentarians for Global Action. Hi, Melissa. Hi. Uh, we also have Oleksandra Matvejchuk from the Center for Civil Liberties in Ukraine and Aurora Parong from the Philippines National Coalition for the ICC. Hi, Oleksandra and Aurora. Nice to meet you. Hello. And starting with you, Melissa, when you're selling the court, so to speak, what do you say? Like universal, what does that mean? Is it a kind of ideal you're describing? Well, considering that an ideal is somewhat inherently unattainable, I prefer to think about universality of the Rome Statute as a challenging goal that uh, colleagues at PGE and other organizations strive to achieve. So what does it actually mean? It means that states or an overwhelming majority of states would ratify the amended Rome Statute and in so doing accept uh, the legality and the legally binding nature of the treaty. So it really means encouraging states that are not yet states' parties to, to ratify the Rome Statute and expand the court's jurisdiction. Universality would, would 
make the system more effective, it would really enhance the legitimacy of the institution and consolidate the international and domestic rule of law. So because today we continue to witness uh, mass atrocities around the world and perpetrators remain unpunished and bringing justice to victims, strengthening a system of international justice and accountability for international crimes, and also preventing uh, repetition of these crimes are the main purposes of the Rome Statute system. Justice is, is a fundamental tool to build peaceful and inclusive societies in which human rights are not a myth, but, uh, but really a reality. Currently, the court has 123 states parties, but a lot of countries remain outside of the accountability system. And so we're working with our members in non-states parties, such as Jamaica, Guinea-Bissau, and even Ukraine, to encourage them to ratify the Rome Statute. Um, I've heard your pitch, Melissa. Okay, I get what you're saying, that uh, it's really important on this big global level. But could you just kind of focus in a little bit for us on what happens to a state when it does sign up? Stephanie's already described this kind of Rome Statute system, but you work on this national level, what happens with the national legislation? Well, the national legislation, it, it, it's, it, it really depends on the country. So you have to foster political will, first off, and parliamentarians are a key part of that. And so basically they have to agree in parliament with their colleagues that they want to ratify their own statute. And once they have done so, they become states parties and they have to implement these uh, the provisions of the of the Rome Statute in their domestic legislation to make it to, to kind of bring it down to the national level. And so they are because based on the principle of complementarity, the states have the primary jurisdiction to, to investigate and prosecute uh, international crimes. And the, the jurisdiction of the court is only complementary to that of the states. And so the states are really the primary actors and their legislation has to be in adequation with the provisions of the Rome Statute so that they themselves, before anything else, unless they are unwilling or unable, then the court steps in. But primarily, they would be the ones that the states would be responsible for the prosecution of international crimes. And Alexandra, you come from a country with a very complex history when it comes to uh, signing up to the ICC. Ukraine has signed, but has not yet ratified the treaty. But it did give the court the power to investigate, which is why we now have this uh, very well-publicized investigation into Ukraine by the ICC. Why is there this back and forth about signing, ratifying? How did that happen? The question of ratification of Rome Statute of International Criminal Court is not theoretical by practical question for current moment, because now we faced with large-scale Russian invasion in Ukraine, and we speak about an enormous number of international crimes which committed by Russian troops. Russia is simply using war crimes as the methods of warfare, and such actions are not justified by any military necessity. We document deliberate attacks on civilian objects and critical civilian infrastructure, using of human shields, rape and other gender-based violence, deliberate killings, torture and ill-treatment, enforced disappearances, etc. But this war started not in February this year, but in 2014, 
And then the duty to fight with impunity in the armed conflict fell to the unprepared law enforcement and judicial system of Ukraine. And see that time, we as a human rights defender are promoting the ratification of Rome Statute of International Criminal Court. It's an international obligation of Ukraine under Article 8 of the Association Agreement with the EU. But this is needed not for EU, but for Ukrainian population itself. Earlier, ratification was hampered by a three-year postponement on the entry into force of amendment to the Constitution of Ukraine. But this term expired on June 2019, and still uh, Ukrainian Parliament has not submitted a bill on ratification. We still continue pushing Ukrainian authorities to make this step. I can hear you you say that you're disappointed. I imagine that they still haven't done this. And we've understood from Melissa how important parliamentarians are in all of this process. Why is it that the parliament did not take the last six months to do this, in your view? What's the blockage still? It's a very good question, because for current moment, we found ourselves in a very strange and even, I can say, weird situation. Because for current moment, Ukraine still is not a state party to the Rome Statute. However, on 2nd of March 2022, the prosecutor announced he had proceeded to open an investigation into situation in Ukraine on the basis of the two declarations received from the government of Ukraine in 2014 and 2015 years. So now we in Ukraine found ourselves in situation in which we warned Ukrainian authorities for all these years, because for one hand, Ukraine has an obligation to cooperate with International Criminal Court on the basis of two declarations, but for the other hand, Ukraine has no right which regular state party to the REM statute have. And when we speak about this with Ukrainian parliamentarians, we don't uh, get the clear response why we still in this situation and why we still not ratify a Rome statute. Maybe I can quickly just ask uh, Melissa to comment because you mentioned that you're working with parliamentarians in Ukraine. I don't want to make the whole podcast about Ukraine, but it's really interesting. What are you hearing from uh, from Ukraine? Why are parliamentarians a little bit not working on this? Are they just diverted by the enormity of everything else that's going on, Melissa? We have similar information than Alexandra. We work a lot with the Center for Civil Liberties and with our members, a lot of, there is a lot of incomprehension because apparently there is a blockage and the president of Ukraine is receiving from, let's say, the military is receiving conflicting information about the Rome Statute. And we do believe, and most of our members are pushing this, that it would be very beneficial for Ukraine to ratify the Rome Statute. And it would not conflict with the current jurisdiction that the court has with the investigation that was opened. Maybe I will add to this point, because for all these eight years, when we promote ratification of Rome Statute, we have heard one argument which is important for Ukrainian parliament. Ukrainian parliamentarians are afraid that Russia will be used international criminal court as a tool against Ukraine. What they said, they said that Russia will falsificate uh, their criminal cases 
and sent this false information to uh, ICC, and they have not to defend Ukrainian citizens, but to try to overcome the Russian propaganda in the International Criminal Court. And we always reply that International Criminal Court is not post-mail. They do their own investigation, and there is no ground for such kind of doubt. But because of a poor understanding what is International Criminal Court is, still for all these years, we have these myths in the mind of some Ukrainian parliamentarians. And from the situation in Ukraine with the hesitant government, we now go to the Philippines and Aurora, who has an entirely different situation with a wholly oppositional government to the court. Uh, the Philippines had withdrawn, as we had earlier remarked, but uh, the investigation into crimes there continues, even though uh, it's now on hold because the government has asked uh, for a deferral while, while they say they investigate their own case. For a while, the Philippines also had its own judge uh, elected to the court. So, so from Manila, we kind of see two waves. We see this objection, but also this cooperation with the court. Uh, so how now is the court seen in uh, Manila, Aurora? How And how does the parliament react to it? In, in the Philippines, we have varied perspectives on due process, justice, and accountability. So that explains it. The values also, how does one respect human rights or international humanitarian laws? So we had to campaign for the ratification of the Rome Statute for more than 10 years. We had to explain issues about complementarity, uh, universal jurisdiction, vis-a-vis sovereignty, because they fear that the sovereignty and independence of the country might be put to, you know, a, a, it's a problem for them. But of course, when we had political leaders and people of the Senate, our legislative body, who are involved in uh, the ratification process, they believe that indeed it is important to have remedies it is important to have accountability and recognize uh, that sometimes accountability or justice is not possible in the country. And therefore, that's it's important to have another court of last resort, which is the ICC. And so we ratified it. We had legislation and then we had the judge. But when we have leaders who are currently in place and who will be coming in as the new government, who distort human rights and fear being subjected to investigation and prosecution by the ICC would, of course, do not want uh, the ICC jurisdiction. It has withdrawn, but the fact that the examination by Prosecutor Fatou started before it was withdrawn, then there are uh, cases which are within the jurisdiction of the court. Uh, while we were still a party to the court. I can see that you're uh, looking at it through this uh, domestic lens, Aurora, because you have you know, the elections and the objections of your domestic politicians. Just from my perspective, the Philippines withdrawal came at nearly the same time that the court came under immense pressure from the United States when we had the sanctions by the Trump administration and also we had all this criticism of the court, that it was over-focused on the African continent, even though we know that 
African states were actually among the first to support the court. Senegal was one of the first countries to to ratify the Rome Rome Statute. So I was wondering, was that Philippines move, were they reflecting this kind of international down point for the ICC or was it more a domestic political move to to withdraw? Did, did they see themselves as part of kind of a mass withdrawal which never materialised in the end or was it all just about domestic politics? It's basically about domestic politics because after we ratified, there was never talk about the ICC as, as a problem. But then came uh, the president, uh, Duterte, in 2016, who started the war on drugs, which resulted to tens of thousands being killed and with no uh, accountability. There's only one case where there was a conviction of policemen, and there were also reports that there is a problem in violations of protocols of investigation, and there can be possible cases, but there's no progress. Aside from that one, there's nothing more. So the civil society primarily uh, assisted the families of victims to file uh, communications with the ICC. And that's basically how it went. And uh, while we're talking about U.S. pressure to withdraw or not to sign up, Alexandra, there we had some diplomats tell us that U.S. also was really leaning on Ukraine during the Trump administration not to join up. Is that also one of the reasons why it got uh, slowed down the ratification? Or do you think it's more internal politics or fear of the Ukrainian army about what an ICC membership could mean? I think that misunderstanding of nature of international criminal court is the main roots of this delay of ratification of Rome statute. But still, we have to do it uh, as quickly as possible, because now, as I told, we have only duty between U- International Criminal Court and no rights as a party to Rome Statute have. And also because uh, there is a huge uh, expectation of Ukrainian population of uh, International Criminal Court. Uh, now we found ourselves in a terrible situation when the whole UN system couldn't help to release any single person from captivity. We hear from you, Aurora and Alexandra, that this is ICC is very much assessed also through a domestic lens. But I was wondering, more on a very practical level, how tough is it to get a ratification? Like how much process do you have to go through at a national level? How many years does it generally take? I think we'll ask Melissa first and then go through Aurora, who has gone through the process and backwards, and then Alexandra, who's in the middle of the process of ratifying. That's that's a very interesting question because it takes it may take a long time and it may take years. And um, for instance, in Latin America, we have almost achieved universality, but uh, it didn't come easily. It took years. These processes take years because you have to foster political will. There has to be enough knowledge about the court in parliament with with the executive, even with the judiciary, because at the end of the day, they will be the ones applying the, the Rome statute uh, domestically. And so it, it this is a long process, but it's incremental steps. And sometimes when you have elections, for instance, 
let's say you work with a parliament for a number of years, you have champions, you have legislators who are proposing uh, the bills, proposing modifications to the criminal code, the criminal procedure, the code of criminal procedure, and then there are elections. And let's say this, these group of legislators who, who are really carrying the project lose their seat or they're not eligible to, to go back to parliament, then the process may have to start again. And so it, it's really about sensitizing the greater number of people and making sure that there's a proper understanding of the Rome Statute system and how it would apply domestically. And Aurora, what would you say about uh, how long it takes or how much you have to organize? We had to ask the president to sign first, and then it should be sent to the Senate for ratification. And that should be it. But what happened was one president signs it, but there was a change of government. And so the new president did not send it to the Senate. So it was just uh, uh, at the back burner. We had to even uh, go to the Supreme Court to ask uh, them to get, since it's just uh, ministerial for us, for uh, the president to give it to the Senate for ratification, but we lost. So anyway, uh, finally, we had this new president who really thought that it is very important to have this. We already had the senators who are ready to ratify. And when it was sent by the president, uh, President Aquino, then they were ready. And one issue that was really very important also then was that the crime of aggression became part of the crimes under the jurisdiction of the court. And we have this problem between China and the Philippines. And we thought that maybe that can be part of the things that that will be a benefit for the Philippines. So we had the ratification. But after the ratification, we had a president who... Uh, got into the war on drugs and with all the killings which can be possibly uh, crimes against humanity of murder, who feared that he will be charged in the court and so did not want it. So that's the the withdrawal. It took more than 10 years for us to uh, give the information and do the campaigning. In fact, we started, the coalition started as a coalition when the court was still not in place, uh, there was already the Rome conference, but the, the court was not there. So what happened was the withdrawal came in and there are now efforts to really evade the ICC by creating an, a review panel, which has not had any good uh, progress in investigating after two years. So the civil society organizations and the victims really have to work hard so that the issue is there and the elections came in, there were possible uh, candidates who would have changed the course of the events, but they lost. So we have an incoming president who's a son of a dictator who doesn't uh, recognize human rights violations during uh, martial law and an incoming vice president who's the daughter of the outgoing president who fears, who fears the prosecution. So we're still here, although the killings continue and there's harassment of uh, families of victims. Most of the 
the members of the coalition deal directly with families and some victims who uh, are alive. That is a, a sobering update of what is going on in the Philippines. If we look very briefly at Ukraine, where are we now in the process? It's signed, but it needs to be ratified. So uh, the next step now is for what? For the president to send it to parliament? Or, you know, where are we technically in the steps of, of ratification for Ukraine? A uh, president has to send uh, the ratification bill to parliament and it still hasn't happened yet. And we as a human rights organization publicly uh, call uh, to do it. But I want also to emphasize on the positive steps which uh, Ukrainian authorities have done uh, since a large-scale uh, Russian invasion. Because regardless of the non-development um, uh, of ratification process, uh, the uh, Ukrainian authorities uh, start to develop the cooperation with International Criminal Court. And last month, Ukrainian parliament voted the uh, bill which regulated procedure aspect of cooperation with uh, International Criminal Court. Also, Ukraine, as well as other countries and International Criminal Court, work together in joint investigative team. Uh, and collect evidence of international crimes, which is committed in the frame of this war. And uh, also, we know that there is uh, intense cooperation between uh, General Prosecutor Office and the field group of uh, International Criminal Court, which was sent uh, in order to uh, provide independent and impartial investigation on the ground. So we still ask President to introduce a draft law on ratification of Rome Statute as quickly as possible. But it's good that on practical level, the Ukrainian authorities are willing to establish a fruitful cooperation. I wanted to just ask uh, all of you whether this kind of focus on the ICC, and I know that's what this podcast is about. It's all about the ICC and that ratification process. Is that the only thing that you really try and work on? Or do you see yourself part of a kind of a bigger movement? I mean, there are other transitional justice processes possible. There's other universal jurisdiction things around the world. I mean, do, do you also see that that you're focused on those areas? Or, or do you think it, the ICC is really the thing that you have to work on most? Melissa? Well, at PGA, of course, we support all accountability mechanisms because the important thing is to provide justice to victims. But we believe that because the ICC is the only independent permanent court with the specificity of being able to investigate and prosecute within the Rome Statute system, which is quite complex, international crimes, we believe that it should be strengthened. And uh, for instance, there have been talks about establishing ad hoc tribunals. Of course, if things are not possible with the ICC, we welcome any development, we welcome any mechanism for justice. But we do believe that focusing on the ICC is a very important uh, measure. It's good not to scatter efforts unless it's, it's necessary. And Alexandra, you've already mentioned other countries being involved in the joint investigation team, for example, and we know how incredibly active your chief prosecutor seems to be. 
I mean, is the ICC the only focus, the only game in town, or do you see it as wider? I will uh, emphasize on that fact that we are faced with enormous amount of crimes. And only since 24 February, uh, the number of uh, criminal procedures which were open is more than 15,000 of criminal investigations. And it's a huge number. The question is uh, how to deliver justice for the whole victims of this uh, all 15,000 cases. And we know that according to procedure, uh, the International Criminal Court will focus on the top officials, political and top military leaders. So International Criminal Court will not cover all these uh, thousands of cases. He will select it several ones. So this in turn means that bringing thousands of perpetrators of this crime to justice remains Ukrainians' responsibility. And once again, with such a huge amount of crime, couldn't be cope any the most effective law system in the world. And that's why now we think how to additionally to International Criminal Court to create an effective mechanism of involving international element on the level of national investigation and national uh, justice. And probably it has to be created an international hybrid tribunal who will cover all other cases which will not be selected by International Criminal Court. And Aurora, let's say you had different political leadership in the Philippines, but let's say the ICC, because of maybe the balance in the Senate or something, was still off the table. Could you imagine a different form of accountability? And do you see that also as your role? Or do you think the ICC is really what you need to aim at? We believe that the ICC is very important for command responsibility, especially since the president has uh, immunity from prosecution. Uh, however, we have tried the UN Human Rights Council, which wanted to do an investigation, an inquiry into the situation, but the Philippine government was able to evade it by creating this review panel that I mentioned earlier. However, for other cases, we have had cases wherein we used the alien tort law to prosecute for compensation in the U.S. when the dictator was in the U.S. And so that's a possibility uh, in case the outgoing president goes there. Also, we had transitional justice mechanisms, which we had here in the Philippines. I was part of a quasi-judicial body, which looked into the gross human rights violations during martial law. And we were able to recognize thousands of victims and provide reparations from the ill-gotten wealth, the one that was stolen by the dictator from the country. And uh, this was used for the reparation. So th these are things that are still in our mind, but we also are trying to see if that national legislation, which looks into the crime similar to the ICC, can take on the cases which are really outside of the ICC because it is after the withdrawal. And like uh, Alexandra said, not everyone will really get to have that possibility to be included at the ICC. 
So there's still efforts to have uh, cases uh, brought to the courts locally. And of course, right now, because we have withdrawn, the coalition continues to do human rights education, hoping that if there's a new government and it will be a government that has all these qualities and values for human rights and uh, accountability, then maybe we, we will be ready by then. So we need to build constituencies right now. And if we kind of zoom out and look at the big picture of the court, you have the big countries, US, Russia, China, India, they seem uh, unlikely to sign up, although, of course, we should never say never. Do you, all three of you, think that the court will always be a kind of court of medium or smaller sized countries? And what kind of arguments can you use uh, when you get that as a counter from the people you're lobbying with to get this Rome Statute ratified? Is this really helping to have a voice against the bullies? And is it still a goal of the coalition for the International Criminal Court to have this universal ICC court? Does that goal still matter after all this time? You can say I'm an optimist, (laughs) even with my AIDS. (laughs) So uh, we need to have hope so that we can be strengthened to continue the work that we have been doing. So I I think uh, the the goal of a universal court is very challenging, but uh, we need to continue trying to get states to ratify, to be part of it. We have, I think, to do more information work, not just with governments, because those big uh, countries are really uh, against the ICC. So maybe we have to get to the citizens of these countries and perhaps build international solidarity and then uh, put forward that uh, all of us have signed UN declarations and conventions as well as uh, uh, the Geneva Conventions. And it speaks about uh, non discrimination. And therefore, there has to be that universal jurisdiction that the right to remedy is universal. So uh, we hope that the citizens can pressure at some point their leaders. And if it happens that the citizens are ready and the political leaders are there to, to do it, then it can happen, I think, still think. Maybe not in my lifetime, but I'm hoping. And Alexandra, are you still optimistic? I mean, Ukraine obviously is impacted by the fact that Russia isn't a member. Is it still worth it to try and, and, and get this? I strongly believe that sooner or later Ukraine will ratify Rome statute. I have no doubt in it. We are on the right track. We sent uh, to a declaration. International Criminal Court has already started investigation. Ukrainian authorities has already started the close cooperation with the International Criminal Court. So we in on the right track and we have to push our authorities to finish this uh, final ratification point. And it's important because we need the idea of universal court. I know them from my practice. I uh, personally gather testimonies from hundreds of victims of war crimes, and they told horrible stories. And I know for sure that they need justice. 
And we have a huge task as a, as a human rights defender, as a country, as an international community, to be able to provide this justice for victims. Because people who suffer it from war crimes and other kind of international crimes, they need not only to restore the broken infrastructure, the separated families, their ruined vision of their own future, but they need to restore their belief that the justice is possible, even if the justice is delayed in time. And Melissa, what is your reply when parliamentarians or, or the kind of smaller countries say, well, the US and Russia, China and India are not members. So, you know, why should we be holier than thou and join this thing if, if the big boys aren't playing, so to say? Yes, I, th- I think it's a, it's a sovereign. I, I tell them that it's a sovereign decision of, of their state. But considering all the benefits that there are to becoming a states party, including participation in a framework of international support, and also in a framework that allows their own legislation to to be strengthened, capacity building for their judicial actors and prosecutors, all the the judiciary, and cooperation with with an international framework, cooperation with other, other states, I think that they have everything to gain. And so they should not look to what the U.S. is doing or what China is doing or what Russia. That shouldn't be the standard. And furthermore, the U.S., depending on its administration, we have seen there is a progression. Uh, there is even now legislation, uh, bipartisan legislation, because of, of the momentum created by the, the Russian aggression against Ukraine. And even the ambassador at, at, at large for global criminal justice mentioned that one of the key priorities of the Biden-Harris administration is, is to contribute to the international justice system and uh, to assist, provide assistance and identify areas where to help the ICC succeed and other accountability efforts. And so I think that states should really, instead of looking to what their neighbors are doing, to really see what is good for their own uh, domestic systems and in their populations. International justice is, is really something that we should preserve and should strive to achieve because it's really worth it for them to, to be part of, of the Rome Statute system. Well, thank you all very much for contributing to this discussion we're having. At the end of our podcast, we always like to ask our what we call asymmetrical haircuts questions. Because there's a lot of you, I'm going to do something and throw, the, throw them in a bit of a mix. We have two questions. I'm going to pose the two of them and you can decide which one you prefer to answer and just pick the side. There is the question of, do you have a favorite court case that you like or that formed you in some way uh, in what you do? And the other question we tend to ask is, what are you watching, reading, listening to that you'd like to recommend? So you can pick either one of those to answer, or uh, if you really want to answer both because you have a very favorite court case and you're also listening to some great podcast, then of course we will allow that as well. But uh, this way you have a little uh, leeway in, in what you would like to pick. I saw Aurora smiling, uh, so I'm going to let her go first, but maybe this was a smile of, oh my God, I haven't prepared this. So. <laughs> You know, I'm looking at uh, Afghanistan and uh, Myanmar, Bangladesh. Afghanistan, because U.S. troops were included initially for those supposed to be investigated. And then the other, uh, Bangladesh, because it's from my region where there's no 
ICC office in the region, Asia-Pacific region, and we're trying to really push so that there can be progress in the cases. So your favorite ICC cases are Afghanistan and Myanmar, I understand from this. Um, Melissa, do you want to go with a favorite case or do you want to recommend something you're reading, watching or listening to? Well, I'm currently reading Why We're Polarized by Ezra Klein. I think it's a, it's a really interesting book because it talks a, a lot about democratic backsliding and why we can't talk to each other anymore in society in general. And I think that has an impact on multilateralism and it has an impact on, on atrocity crimes. And so it's it's really interesting to to read that. It, this is in the American context, but I think that it's something that we're noticing everywhere around the world. Finally, Alexandra. It's very important to examine the past experience because we all stand on some previous basis. But maybe I will encourage to create the most interesting uh, court case together. And now we are working on this issue because we need not to predict future. We need to create future, which we want. And I want to have a future with justice. Thank you all so much for uh, contributing today. Just before we wrap up, I want to play a final clip from Brigitte Sur. Why? Well, this one actually has uh, a cock crowing, a rooster in the background, and it just sounds wonderful. No, no, that's not the real reason. The real reason is that I think it helps to round up what contribution the Coalition for the International Criminal Court, our partners on this podcast, have managed to make over the last 20 years. So I ended up just by asking her whether she's proud of what they've achieved. I'm I'm proud of what I managed to do. I'm proud of the coalition we built. I'm, I'm proud of the partnership between the international NGOs and the national NGOs and how that carries forward in, in many, many ways. It carries forward in, in the, the regional courts and commissions and, and justice nationally, legal reforms that are, that are required, capacity building. I mean, it carries forth in a lot of different ways that I'm, I'm really proud of. So with that final note from uh, Brigitta from her tropical island, just remains for me to say thank you to everybody and um, hope to see you here in The Hague for whatever reasons, Alexandra and Aurora and Melissa. Bye. Nice to meet you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.